Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Brad King, Alex Welsh, and Eric Hibbs. On episode 14, the Gearheads sit and talk hot rods, tuckers, and racing on the beach, with the one and only Rob Ida. Tonight on America's favorite podcast-based game show, Know Thyself, Mr. Rob Ida of Morgantown, New Jersey will be tasked with answering a half dozen questions about his life, his career, and his passion for automobiles. Should he fail to answer even one of these questions correctly, he'll be drawn and quartered and have his spilled insides squeegeed up and sent off to be used for scientific experiments and use in cosmetic beauty products. Are you ready, Rob? All right, here we go. Uh, <laughs> sounds good. I'm ready for that. Well, <laughs> I, I got yeah, have you been rehearsing that. that all day? That was Boy, great. I was going to add that. Nicely, nicely done, man. You got well a fun intro. Bob Pardo, tell him what he's won. <laughs> That'd be great. So the first question, how the heck are you tonight, sir? I'm good. I'm real good. I just got back from the shop. So I'm, uh, we had a long week. Our, our week was uh, full of, of all kinds of things hot rod. We, we uh, spent most of it concentrating on that Gene Winfield Roadster, which you may have seen. Oh, and, yes, we yeah. have. So uh, that kind of started at the Greenwich Concours. That was... Uh, a week ago, Saturday, we took that car to the Greenwich Concours, and uh, just for the second year, Greenwich has been showing hot rods um, at, at their event. So they invited a few of our cars. One was the uh, the Googie's Gasser that we uh, recently uh, restored, right the on. 1940 Gasser that, that used to run, oh, Willie's Gasser used to run out in uh, Arizona in mm-hmm. 68, 67 and 68, set a couple of records. So that was the first Gasser they've ever invited to the Greenwich Concours. In addition cool. to the uh, Tucker that you guys saw at SEMA, the uh, yep. the handmade turbo Tucker, and uh, and then finally the 32 Ford Roadster that Gene Winfield actually started working on back in 1948. He said uh, prior to him getting his hands on it, 48, the car was raced in uh, at Muroc, fenderless, and it came to him when it was purchased by Lou Thompson, and he put the fenders back on it and made kind of a street car back out of it. He says he remembers welding the welding and letting the, the cow vent in for the first time. And that was in 1948. But interestingly enough, he's, he's always worked on that car since 1948. All every owner of the car has always brought it back to Gene. And so he did a full custom build on it. In 53. It was in hot rod magazine, uh, back in the late fifties and the uh, car craft. It was on the cover. Um, so the car is an awesome history. And so now I'm the current owner of it. So, um, yeah, so they, they, cool. yeah, it is such a cool car. I mean, now it's got a blown Arden equipped flathead in it. And, um, wow. Yeah. It's, it's a hell of a oh, car. I mean, that it sounds car, good too. Yeah. It sounds so good. In, in my opinion, that 32 is probably what you'd build. If today you were going to build your fantasy traditional hot rod, it would be that Auburn dashboard and, uh, and, uh, Calibrain, uh, uh, quick change rear, all the things that you'd want to put in your fantasy car. But this car had it. It actually had it from back in the day. He says, uh, Gene said that he remembers getting 
the dash from an Auburn and, and putting it in that car way back then. Um, so, I mean, it is really just one total car. It's got it all. And um, so, anyway, we showed it at the Greenwich Concourse, and it won the um, the Brocky Yates Award, which we were really happy about that. Um, but just a few days after, Gene comes flying in from from uh, Mojave, and uh, and, he, and he gives a, a class, metal-shaping class, right in our shop. And now we're talking about a guy who's 91. He'll be 91 years old this coming Saturday. And um, so he flies in from California to New Jersey. I mean, just that flight alone is enough to knock most people out. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I pick him up at I think it was about 7 or 7.30 p.m. By the time we get to, you know, back to my shop, it's probably close to nine. And um, and what do we do? We automatically put in like two or three hours preparing for his class the next morning. What yeah, a champ! He he has got energy. Guy's an, guy can't even he imagine. is amazing. The guy's an animal. He really is. He, he's he's amazing. So uh, we're all prepared for the class, and he says, "Okay, pick me up at, at the hotel tomorrow morning at seven. Class starts at nine. I want to get ready." So um, so I pick him up early in the morning, seven o'clock. Bring him over to the shop. We put another few hours in pre- uh, preparing for the class. Class comes in now. It's forty-three people. Imagine you know you have forty-three people. Not only are they all excited just to meet Gene and and uh, and just talk to him and get his autograph and see him, and he has to be energetic and and polite and and answer all these questions. <laughs> but then he has to go into like almost ten hours of metal shaping class. And I'm not talking about like on a chalkboard. Like he's actually cutting and welding and hammering and shaping on an English wheel, doing everything that that it takes to 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 give a, a full detailed explanation of these things that he's learned and, and that he's picked up over you know, 70 years of, of doing this, 75 years of, of doing this kind of work. So, uh, so cool. Yeah. So cool. So, so the, the class ends, I think uh, he probably wrapped up maybe about seven o'clock on the first day. So he was already there for 12 hours and um, someone brings a, a hood in for him to paint that they're doing a, a, a raffle car for charity. So he wraps up the class, goes right into my spray booth, and starts doing one of his famous fade paint jobs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, the guy, you know, I keep saying it, but he's 91 years old and he just doesn't stop. But, I can't do that at 46. Yeah, I know. And so now he's in the booth, he's spraying. It's like a three-color fade paint, you know, one of his famous fades. Clears it, comes out great. Um, so by the time we wrap that up, it's probably... 10 o'clock. Now we're going to go eat some dinner at 10 o'clock and get them back to the hotel. <laughs> right back at it the next morning. Same thing. Pick them up at 7 o'clock. Comes back to the shop. It's a full day. And uh, and so all 43 people, I think, that the, they were just totally thrilled with the, with the experience that they had with them. They learned a lot, and it was, it was a good time. He kept everybody entertained. Um, but then the next morning, what do we do? Friday morning, we load the cars up, and we head down to the Race of Gentlemen. That's the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the race on the beach. Right so on. Mel Stoltz, yeah, he, he started this race of gentlemen, uh, I think, seven years ago, right here in New Jersey. Yep. And um, and as Mel explains it, I mean, I think he's, he's right on when, when he says that it was just him and, and a couple of his drunk buddies wanted to race their hot rods on the beach. <laughs> so <laughs> somehow or another, he, he charmed the mayor of the, of the local beach over here, uh, close to me, to, to allow that to happen. And I remember the first year being there, it was it was totally unorganized. Not that it's much more organized now, but, but I mean, it was really chaos that first year. I remember the state police showed up and, 
they were going to shut him down, but somehow Mel has got a way about him. He, he charmed them right back into letting the race happen. And uh, Oh, my gosh. And we're not talking about cars that are equipped with roll bars or modern seat belts or even helmets. I mean, we're we're talking about throw something on your head and, and drive that car down the beach. <laughs> or motorcycles. <laughs> not only cars, but we're talking about, like, suicide-shifted motorcycles. Um, yeah. You know, there were a couple hands, of wrecks this yeah, year, too, weren't there? There were a couple of wrecks this year, and that may may change things for the race of gentlemen. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to pan out. Did anybody get hurt? Yeah, two guys. One guy from Japan. I'm not sure where the other guy was from. He was from the States, but I'm not exactly sure where. Um, And I think they were both on motorcycles. They went down and got busted up pretty good. So um, I think that things are going to change. Now, Sunday morning, the second day of racing, Mel comes out and he says, okay, uh, we need real helmets. All of a sudden, uh, things got serious now. There was an accident. So no more of these vintage helmets that you bought on eBay because they look cool. We need DOT helmets. And and this is right on like right on the starting line. He's telling us this. Oh so my. like two people had helmets <laughs> in, in their trailers or whatever. <laughs> so now he's gonna share two helmets amongst like a hundred racers. <laughs> so, <laughs> Would you like the house Ooh. helmet? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well it, imagine imagine this. You have to make a run, and then someone has to get the helmet off that guy. Run it, run it back to the starting line. The it's like a relay. It's like bowling shoes. You spray it between racks. Yes, the pomade builds up inside, yeah. and it becomes safer and safer. Suddenly, like, well, the helmet doesn't fit anymore. It's too tight. Oh. Well, that's when that, that's when Gene tapped out. He said, "Okay, I think we're done racing because." We're not going to get many runs in, and, and he had to fly back to uh, California that night. But, but uh, he did it though. I mean, we we got up early in the morning on Saturday. We drove the car. And it's a fully fendered thirty-two roadster. Um, so we drove the car out onto the onto the beach, put it in the pits, and that's where we took all the fenders off. We took the headlights off, the uh, the, the windshield, all the street gear. We, we took it off right there on the beach, left it in our pit, and uh, Gene. Put his helmet on. He strapped himself in, and he raced down the beach. I mean, he, he really did great. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it was so exciting to see it. I mean, here's a guy, I mean, a living legend, a guy who's done it all. And I got to say, if you don't know, if you don't love Gene, then you probably just don't know him because you haven't know, met him yet. Yeah. Oh my God, he is such a great guy. If you get the opportunity and you could spend some time with him, do it. He he is he is the real thing. And um, I got to say, before I knew him. I had this, I had this image in my mind that uh, maybe Gene is, you know, uh, overrated, or, or or maybe it's all hype, or, or what? Because I didn't really pay much attention to a lot of the things that he did. I knew I knew some of the more famous things, the customs and 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 the things that most people know about Gene. But once I really got to understand that he's done it all. I mean, the guy he's got a NASCAR license from 1952. I mean, yeah, he. <laughs> He's done it all. He's made movie cars, and he's made show cars and race cars, and he's built them and he's driven them, and um, and he's done an awful lot of of innovative things, not only for styling but for performance. He's just a well-rounded guy, and um, and I think he's as relevant today as as he ever was, and he's yeah. sharp as a tack. When you talk to him, you forget that he's the age that he is because it never seems to come up, and and it does it doesn't really. Um, have an impact on the conversation because he's he's up on what's new and what's going on and and uh, and he's got he's just got a sensibility about him that's that's amazing 
he's where all of us want to be at that age. If you're yeah, a hot I, rodder, that's what you want to be. You want to be yeah. get hammering down at 91. That is awesome. Oh, it's awesome. It, it really is. Um, so very inspiring guy, you know, just in so many different ways. Now, I think uh, some of you guys go to Syracuse. That's a heck it, of an event. It is. I mean, I think they're getting like close to 9,000 guards there. Oh, and, wow. uh, oh. yeah, wow. yeah it, it's a big one. And it's a, it's and a great it, venue, too. It is. It, it, it really is. The fairgrounds are excellent there. So um, that's where Gene chose to do his, his top six. Uh, so he invites six cars in from around the country and uh, cars that he saw during the year that, that really uh, excited him. So he'll bring those cars in. And I, I think he pays maybe about a thousand bucks to each person just to get there. And then once they're, they're there, um, now they're competing for a $10,000 prize. And um, so uh, two years ago, we won that with the with the car that I built for Jack Kiley. And that's really what I got to know Gene was after that. And uh, so Jack Kiley, he owns the blue 40 Merc three window that we did a couple of years ago. I remember that. Big yeah. uh, flowing skirts on it, that one? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep, that's the car. Oh, so, beautiful car. Thank you. Thanks. So, so Jack competed for that award. That was the only thing that he ever really competed. I've never shown a car competitively, ever. In, in all of my life, I've never competed for anything except for that. And and the only reason why we entered that, well, number one, Gene invited us to it. That was a, a nice thing. But I, then I really started to understand Gene's body work, and, and, and I really started to understand how much that means. Because here's a guy who knows what he's looking at. He's done he's done it all for so long since the beginning of this of hot rodding, and um, so I started to really think. Well, if I'm going to compete for something, usually we don't know who the judge is, or if the judge is a qualified builder, or, or where he comes from. Maybe he's just kind of sponsoring a trophy or, or what. I never know that, so that's why I never really compete. Not that. Art should be competitive anyway. I, I look at these cars as, a, as an artistic expression. And should they really compete? Should they be a, a contest or just be appreciated? Thank and you. I always, yeah, <laughs> I always felt that they should just be appreciated. Either you like it or you don't. And if you like it, great. If it inspires you to, to, um, to do something on your own that maybe looks like that, or maybe not. Maybe it inspired you to say, I'm going to stay away from a car that <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is well that's also inspiration that's... yeah it is it's inspiration it, it moves you in a direction and as long as a car moves you then I think that as a builder or designer you know then we're doing our job and um, so anyway we did compete for, for, for that one and only uh, award with, uh, with with Gene and Jack was always an admirer of, of, of Gene Winfield he said when he was growing up he used to read about him in magazine so it, it kind of meant a lot to him as well and uh, so we won the award, and Jack, being the wonderful guy that he is, he, he, he takes that $10,000 prize and he donates it right back to the Ronald McDonald charity, which put the event on. Outstanding. And, yeah, I mean, he's just such a class act. So he did that, and I know Gene appreciated it, and, and so I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm surrounded by great people, and I'm very fortunate to have that. But um, So that may be the only time that we ever compete for any, you know, for any award. That was, the, that was the one and only. And uh, so it was a great experience for us. And since then, Gene and I have, have um, kept in touch. And, and so now when I bought this, this car, when this 32 came up, uh, and, and I didn't know much about it, really, because I always thought, like I said, Gene 
for more customs than than for hot rods. But when this car came up, and they said that Gene built it, I called Gene and I said, "Really? Is this is this true?" You know, and he said, "Oh yeah, he said, I've built that four times. I built that car four times since 1948." <laughs> and he told me about every nut and bolt on it. So I had to have it. And so once I got it, and and of course me buying a car that someone else built, that's that's new for me too because I always built my own stuff. And right. um, so I'm not really one who uh, goes out and buys something and kind of collects it or or does a lot of that that type of thing. I usually build my own car. Number one, because I, I can't ever afford to buy someone else's, so I have to build my own. And uh, and two, I usually you know build it the way I like it, and, and I don't even try to look for something else because that's just what I do. Um, but when this came up, I, I felt like it was it was kind of meant to be, and. Uh, and then I had this idea, oh, wouldn't it be cool to not only enter it in a uh, Concours event, but race it at the Race of Gentlemen with Gene behind the wheel. So we, we just did that. It was a great week, and, and Gene went back on Sunday, and we're just kind of, you know, looking back and saying, how, what, what an amazing week we just had with that car, you know, a car that I really didn't do a whole lot with, but now suddenly has become a big part of, of my life. Um just from the experience, not from the build experience, but from, from what Gene had to add to it. Yeah, and, and you've got something now that it, it's like it becomes kind of a family heirloom over time where it's got so much history behind it. You've got that great emotional attachment to it, and you kind of it falls right into that, that whole thing of yours where, you know, cars aren't, you know, built to be competitive devices, but instead now you've got something that you have an emotional attachment to and it's there because you like it, you know the history, you can enjoy that. That's, God, that's beyond cool. And it's it almost seems fitting that it wound up in your hands. You know, I, I, I feel like it, it was meant to be, really. I mean, the way it, it, it fell into my hands was, was pretty amazing. And, um, yeah, so I'm not looking to sell that one anytime soon. That, that's going to stay <laughs> in the bank. <laughs> Next week, um, or in two weeks, I was invited to take it on a hill climb. And so I've done some hill climbs in the past in, in, a, in a 356 Porsche, um, but this will be a new experience. So I've left the fenders off it. It still looks all full of deep sand and everything right now from the race of gentlemen. So I'm going to just kind of leave it that way. It's lettered up. It's got numbers on it. So we're going to take it to the hill climb in Long Island um, in two Sundays from now. We'll see how Too we do there. Cool. Yeah. So it's a vintage event. It's a 1940 cutoff. So, um, I think my car probably have more power than everybody else's because it has an overhead valve conversion and a supercharger. So I, I know that I kind of have an unfair advantage. And um, so I think they're going to put me in an exhibition class so that, you know, just to keep things fair, because um, the heads on the car are really from 19, 1948 and they don't quite make the cutoff. So it's going to be just more of a fun experience. And, and, you know, again, we don't really care to compete. It's not what it's about. It's about going up the, the mountain and, and having a lot of fun and hopefully keep it on four wheels. So what's that Arden making north of 300 horse? Yeah, it made a 310 horsepower at the crankshaft. Um, oh, yeah. oh, so Ferguson cool. built the engine, did a beautiful job. The engine's a work of art. I mean, it runs so good. Um, so the paperwork that came with the car showed me that it made 310 horsepower at six pounds of boost and has a, a Scott supercharger on it. Um, and then we just recently put it on my dyno at the shop just uh, last Thursday. In fact, Gene drove it on the dyno and uh, it made 270 at the, at the wheels. So that's, was, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. 
that's really good for a flathead car, man. I was so impressed. I um, could throw a turbo 400 in there and end up with like, you know, nine horsepower at the wheels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, I've got, I've got a 1958 BA that makes zero horsepower. Oh, it's fresh okay. built. Yeah. yeah. What's that in? Uh, yeah, a 54 two door sedan. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so the, the, the 32 is, uh, is a nice addition to the, to the group. It's already bringing lots of fun and memories and we're excited about that. Moving forward with Gene, he's got a couple of projects that, he started back in the 60s, and he'd like to get them finished. And um, for uh, for various reasons, they didn't get done. But we're considering may- maybe taking a look at them. Because uh, imagine this. It's great to, to build a custom or restore a custom or recreate a custom that was done you know, back in the 60s or 50s. But how about if, if one was already started and, and never finished? And it would finally get done now, you know, under under Gene's direction with with some of his of his current handwork being involved, some of what he did back then. And that's a pretty special thing. You know, that doesn't just happen. You know, these cars are like NOS customs. You know, they're they're like not (laughs) they're not done. (laughs) They're just sitting there waiting to get done. And they are absolutely spectacular as far as the concept goes. So, um. That might be something that, that could happen sometime. I wonder, I wonder so. if you could do like something kind of reverse psychology-wise with these cars where, yeah, they've, they're all, you know, they're period perfect. They've got the period parts on them and everything. But maybe as you show them, just explain to people. It's like, no, 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 we just picked up all the parts over on Night Prowlers, eBay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Well, laughs> Spend a lot of time engraving made in China on the back of parts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's oh my god! See, that's that's the kind of stuff I live for. Yeah, you know, and the cool part is, I mean, he's he's such an icon, and now you're getting a chance to build something, or actually, I should say, to finish something that's never been seen. Right. That's just yeah. my mind just melted on itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they've never been seen. Exactly right. Man. Yeah, that's and the stories behind amazing. them. I'm not sure he's ready for me to share the story yet. But... The stories behind them were as interesting as the cars. So, um, if and when that happens, I think we'll have we'll have a lot to talk about on that subject. Oh, it's, so can, it's so we'd like to we'd like to schedule pool. with you now to have you back to <laughs> talk yeah. about. That. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of what we do in, in our shop is is always, you know, we, we need that emotional attachment to these to these projects. We don't we don't take them in based on billable hours. That that that. That really never even plays a, a, a part in, in us deciding if we're going to take a, a project on. We, we, we look at a couple things. One is, is, what is the project? And two, who is it for? And what's he going to do with it? And, and usually, a lot of that has to do with what, what does it mean to him? You know, why does he want this? And why do we want this? And are we inspired enough to take it on? Because they're, they're, they're grueling. You know, the projects are grueling. They don't just, like, put themselves together. Every, any car builder will tell you that. You suffer. You suffer over these things. So if you're going to commit to a project or a chunk of your life that you're going to suffer over, a lot of the cars that I build take three, four, five, sometimes six years to build. I mean, I, I put a lot of time in in these things, and we don't have a big group. You know, we're we're not we're not one of these shops that have twenty thousand square feet and, and fifty employees. Like we don't have that. There's six thousand square feet, and it's four of us. And wow. we, we work our asses off every, 
every inch of the place is packed with work and it's not a show place either you know you walk in there don't expect to see like shiny floors and neons we, we say that our, our our shop is decorated with work and and that's it everywhere <laughs> you look is work whether it's whether it's scrap metal on the floor grinding dirt whatever it's it, it's a result of the work and we don't we don't really put a lot of time and energy into you know the, the things that don't matter the, the, the things that don't add to that car it's all it's always about the car everything is about making that car better as good as you can make it whether it's um you know a race car that needs to, to go fast you know and we're going to put all our energy into making it perform or if we're going to build a car that's that's uh, more about its beauty we're going to put all the effort we can in the detail and, and the styling um and and also knowing when to stop we we, we feel like we yeah. know when to stop and we try not to overdo these cars we put a lot of thought into doing everything that needs to be done but no more and and sometimes cars i feel are over finished and over processed and over developed and mm -hmm. that's another reason why i stay away from competitive type car events because i feel like it has a negative impact when you're trying to score points or or satisfy a checklist um, yep. And I'm not saying that I'm right and show car builders are wrong. It's just that I'm not, I'm not into that. Um, I like a car that has a sweet spot and knows where it is. And when you look at it, it's it's just right. It should feel right. It should feel like yep. what it's supposed to look like. And sometimes if a car is over-processed and over-polished, it becomes sterile and, and looks fake and and. And like a, like a toy, and and I I, I don't really like that. I, I like a car to look like a car, and um, you, you shouldn't have to worry about having fasteners <laughs> because cars have fasteners. You know they do. They have screws, <laughs> and they have they they're held together with something. And, yeah. and in the '90s, we hit every fastener. We made everything look like it, like it couldn't happen. And, like it was um, poured out of a can. The whole car was poured out of a can. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we thought was right at the time. Yeah, and we did yeah. it. And, and maybe, you know what, I mean, one day that will come back. I know it will, because we've always made fun of cars from the 60s, and then now they're back, and they're the coolest thing, and then the, you know, yeah. the 70s are going to come back, and, and, and that's the coolest thing. So I know that eventually that look from the 80s and 90s that we laugh at now sure. will Absolutely. come back. Mm -hmm. Brian can't wait to start wearing bell bottoms again. So <laughs> wait, 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 he'll, be, he'll be ready for that. Well, it's just <laughs> again stuff, man. Golf, <laughs> golf and shorts and Oakley blade sunglasses. With <laughs> <laughs> the Z Cavaricis. <laughs> well, I just I love the fact that you you hit on something that we had talked about just a couple weeks ago on the podcast as a group. Uh, we got into the whole subject of that whole overprocessing of a car and yeah. bolting on anything and everything you can possibly put on. You know, when do you get to the point where you're saying, okay, form versus function? You know, do, mm -hmm. do I need, again, or do I need carbon fiber ball joints? Or <laughs> would, you know, these, <laughs> these off-the-shelf units, are these going to be fine? Do I need to over-engineer something? And, you know, that's what I love about your cars. They, man, you look at something, again, like the Merc. You look at that car, your mind is blown because there's so much reverence to a historical, you know, kind of a, a kind of a historical mindset on that thing, but yet there's little things that blow your mind because they're so trick and engineered. And once your brain starts to wrap around how much engineering there is, you look at things like you go, "Oh my God, these guys made uh, you know leather boots to go over suspension parts." And 
man, see, the stuff you do that's over the top just seems right. And you find that really yeah. that sweet spot. I'm not, not trying to blow smoke up your ass or anything like that. I'm just, <laughs> I, I, I mean this sincerely. Well, it's well, well received. <laughs> well, awesome. <laughs> Keep blowing, bro. And More smoke. Yeah, I have to yeah, edit yeah. that out. It's going to be a ringtone <laughs> now. <laughs> no, we, 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 we do. We put a lot of effort in, into no one just want to stop. We love engineering. We do. And we love when engineering could go in a car and be invisible. Um, and for instance, that Merc has things about it that most people don't even know are a part of the car. The, uh, like the air intake for, for, the, for the supercharged engine on the Merc. It looks like it has two air cleaners that hang off the supercharger, two round, uh, kind of like oil bath style air cleaners. They are actually uh, cool cans for the supercharger. It has an intercooler below the supercharger with liquid that runs through those two oil bath air cleaners that have coils in them. So you could pack them with ice if you wanted um, and, cool. and for a cool can. But the air is actually coming in through the factory cow vent. So our car didn't need a cow vent, but it looks right in the car because it came with a cow vent, and that's what you'd expect to see behind the hood is a cow vent. But that's also the perfect place to get the best possible air when that car goes down the road to feed the engine. So we move the the throttle body to the back of the supercharger feeds into the uh, firewall and it almost goes unnoticed. You can't even really tell that it happens, but it goes into the firewall behind the dash is kind of a uh, soundproof box. That is real heavy wall insulated box behind the dash. And inside that is an air filter and mass airflow sensor. And we took the five volt signal from the drive by wire system and we, connected that to a servo so now as you apply throttle with your foot the cow panel opens in proportion to the throttle blade so you're getting yeah that's cool you're getting grabber hood from a motor grabber hood you're getting the best possible air charge it's almost like having a hillborn scoop on the hood but the car wouldn't look right with a hillborn scoop on the hood so so (laughs) we we didn't compromise in design uh, and we didn't compromise in performance and i think anytime you can find the point where great engineering and great styling without compromise to either one when they could meet equally you know then you really have something special i always say you know you can make a a dump truck that works perfectly but it still looks like a dump truck you know or you could you could make something that is just beautiful but doesn't even move and doesn't work or function um and that, those are two good things but if you can have both if you can have the, the engineering and the styling without compromising either, then you really have something great. And that, and that, that's the challenge is finding that, finding that, that, um, that balance. That is the challenge. And I love that. And I love when, when we get it. And sometimes we, we're struggling on, on a thing, a part of a car, and we know that it, there, there's better. We could do better, but it just hasn't come to us yet. We just don't know what it is yet. And, uh, and we'll just keep looking at it and playing with different things. We'll throw away a concept 10 times if we have to. And hopefully we don't have to, but sometimes you do. And eventually it, it feels right. And, and, you know, you got it. And so we love that. You know, that's always the, the big payoff. As I said, we don't, we don't really do these things for the money. We need the money because you, you have to run a business. But that's not. <laughs> yeah, got to keep the doors open. Yeah, you got to keep the doors open. But that's not what fuels the project. There are so many of these projects that we lose money on, but we do it because we love it, you know, all for the, for the good of the project. 
lose a little on every deal, but make it up in volume, right? Uh, yeah, volume when we do when it takes five years to build a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, that time machine in the back of the shop helps. That's it's. But yeah, we're working on that one next. So, <laughs> not not to jump around too much, but uh, you know, you talking about you know finding that that balance between engineering and design, it all makes perfect sense that in the past, you know, over the past years, you guys have really gotten involved with some absolutely cool Porsche projects. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love the Porsche projects. I really do. And, you know, only recently did I realize how many people love both hot rods and Porsche. And and I, I think that I, I was totally unaware of that because, for instance, my father and, and our local groups around here have zero interest in a Porsche, like none. And um, so I assumed that that was pretty much the mentality of most hot rodders that they didn't they didn't like Porsches one or the other but I, I kind of like almost every type of car and uh which is like to a fault I I, I want to have all of them but um <laughs> <laughs> once I started kind of bringing our hot rod stuff into the Porsches then I started to realize there's a lot of people that have both and like both and um I mean just just the other day a guy walks in and he was there for some 32 Ford stuff, and uh, and I'm, I'm finishing up a 930 right now uh, for uh, Mike Terzich. And um, he sees a car in the, in the shop, and right away I'm going to like ignore the, the Porsche because I figure he's a 32 guy. Let's go over and talk about the 32 stuff. He goes, oh, oh, oh. He goes, I'm a Porsche guy. I, w- I want to look at this 930. So that, then he's looking at the car. <laughs> and then and then he shows me that, you know, he's got a couple of Porsches and he's got a couple of 32s. And, uh, and I said, oh, look at that. He's, you know, a, a man after my own heart. But th- there seems to be more of that than I than I realized. So we're into into 356s. We're into 911s. Uh, 930 Turbo is like really my, my car. And um, and so we've been seeing more and more of that coming into the shop. And, and I like it because they're... Um, they're a little easier to build in hot rods. <laughs> we, we don't have to suffer over every piece of them because there there you know are parts there that we can we can benefit from. We can still call Porsche and uh, and and get parts that make those those cars easy to go together. Now we can't do that with the with a Tucker dealer. We can't we can't call the Tucker dealer and and, uh, <laughs> and get the parts we need. Unfortunately, we have so, to make all that stuff. Was that a hard sell to, to anybody else to do the Porsche in the uh, Tucker thing? I, I mean, no. I mean, it, 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 all comes, it all comes pretty easy. And, you know, it, I'm like a Willys guy, a Tucker guy, and a Porsche guy. So when you walk in my shop, you're surrounded <laughs> by Willys, Tuckers, and Porsches, which is an <laughs> odd combination. But somehow we, we stay busy with those three. And um, and you know, people people seem to like it. I don't know. They, they walk in and, and they're... Uh, they're interested in hearing about the Tucker, our family history with the, with the Tucker, with the cars that we're building, and um, and then you know I think that the, the styling that we're doing now on the, on the Porsche 930 seems to excite a lot of people, and that's triggering some new projects that are coming our way, uh, Porsche related, and the Willys thing has just always been part of the part of the uh, you know the, the the family love too. You know my father, he was a, he was a, a gasser, a, a racer back in 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 the 60s. He started with a 34 Ford with a blown 409 in it when he was still in high school. He bought a 409 in 1962 when that engine just came out. <laughs> he, he bought it, you know, just like the song. You know, he saved his pennies and he saved his dimes and he bought a brand new 409. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. He, 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 he saved his lunch money from high school and he worked at the gas station that my grandfather owned. And, and that's what he did. He went to the Chevy dealer and 
heard about this new big block that was coming out, and he bought a crate engine, and he adapted a supercharger onto it, and um, and he had he had the world's fastest and blown 409 in a Channel 34.5 window, which is just the coolest oh, car ever. So, oh. Yeah, it is just the coolest thing. Um, he doesn't have it anymore, but the pictures are, are enough to, to make your heart race. And, um, you know, for me, looking at pictures of that car and the Hemi Healy, which we yeah. recently found yep. in the oh. car and restored the Hemi Healy to oh. my dad's 70th birthday. Um, and then and then we just made a clone of his 409-powered Willie sedan. Uh, we couldn't find the original car, but we, we made one that looked just like it. And uh, so those are the kind of projects that, that just excite us, you know. And uh, and those are the cars that got me absolutely hooked on hot rods when I was a kid. Now, there was a short time when my father was kind of out of hot rods. He decided that they, they were just too expensive and too dangerous for, you know, for racing. He's got to get serious about running his repair shop business and raising his family. So when I was a kid, he wasn't really doing any hot rod stuff. He was repairing cars, just like regular transportation cars he was repairing them with a collision shop and, and a repair shop and his hobby was horses so he moved from brooklyn to new jersey kind of into the country horse country and um, met some new people and and he got interested in horses so when i was growing up that's what his focus was was uh, kind of rodeo and, and and horses and then one day i found his scrapbook and i opened it up and there was the hemi healy it was just this big <laughs> color picture of the Healy on its back bump, you know, yeah. and he was doing his wheel stand. It was the final run for that car because when it came down on the wheel stand, it bent in <laughs> half. And, and he took all the race car parts <laughs> off of it and sent it to the local junkyard. And that was the end of that car. But that image, I mean, I remember it like it happened five minutes ago when I opened it up and I saw the image of that car standing on its rear bumper. And I said, that is the most badass thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And I still think it's the most badass thing. I've oh, that thing's awesome! It, it's incredible. How, how old were you when you came across this? I was seven. I was seven years old when oh, I came across that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah you, you were doing yeah, hooked. That's the yeah, perfect age to mark, to mark that impression. It's oh. yeah, yep. I was seven years old, and, and I never cared about a horse again after that. I said, I said, forget <laughs> these horses, Dad. I, you know, <laughs> we we got to get a hot rod. So. Um, so we yeah, bought, you don't have to clean up hot. Well, I guess you do have to clean up hot rod shit when you break something, but yeah. Well, you know, he still kept his horses for like ever, <laughs> but uh, but we didn't pay much attention to them like we did the hot rods. So um, when I was seven, we had a friend who had a Willie's pickup. It was an old gasser and it was laying out in his, in his backyard, and it was one of those things. Yeah, one day I'm going to get to it, and uh, so it wasn't for sale. But I, I remember I remember calling him up, calling Steve. Steve Mustakis, I remember calling him up and, and saying, you have to sell us that car. You have to sell us that Willys. We, we want to build it. So he did. He ended up selling it to us and even helped us put it together. But uh, my dad built a blown 427 Chevy and put it in there. And it was a streetable car. Uh, it was streetable, but it was a 10-second car. And and now we're talking about 1980 that, that like this stuff was going on. Oh, so there weren't, there weren't many streetable Ten-second cars in 1980. I mean, that was, your your definition of streetable might be a little different than everyone else's. It, it, it could be. Yeah, I mean, we only lived ten minutes from Raceway Park, so um, so the the ride there wasn't so bad, you know. But it was it drove there under its own power, and we used to drive it all around town. And and this is when cruise nights were cool because I remember going to cruise nights with my dad, and they would end when the cops would show up. 
And, you know, now Cruz Knight are sitting in a lawn chair and listening to new op music and stuff, which is fine. You know, it's a it's a it's a great way to, to spend you know Saturday night. But but I remember when when Cruise Knights were were like outlaws, you know, and uh, yeah. and that's what we used to do with that Willie's pickup. So from that that time on, I never cared about anything else but hot rods and, and particularly Willie's and Tucker's, you know, because Tucker's goes back to my grandfather back in 1947 when he opened up the newspaper and he saw this car of tomorrow, which is the, was the Tucker Torpedo, not the Tucker 48 that we know that we all know of, but, but the, mm-hmm. the Tucker Torpedo was, was a concept car that oh. Preston Tucker dreamed of, but never actually built. And the reason why he didn't build that car, um, there's a variety of reasons, but the, the main reason why he didn't build that car, if you ever see what a torpedo looks like, it has a turret shaped roof. So it's a very rounded windshield and the driver sits in the center. Problem with the center drive on that car is that when you open the door, you have to like walk to your seat. You know, somehow or another, you have to close the butterfly door and walk to your seat and get yourself in the car. Not very yeah. practical. Getting out is not 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 even possible. Getting out of that driver's seat and getting out of the car, um, you just smash your head right into the into the roof or the windshield. So so getting in and out is is not even an option. So Tucker went from that design to a squared off uh, roof design where he can put the the driver back into the traditional position over on the left. And he built 50 of those cars. And my grandfather happened to be one of the dealers for Tucker. He had a deal a dealership that he bought in uh, in New York. He basically pulled together all the family's money and, and sold whatever he could sell, and raised up enough capital to buy a dealership and uh, and rent a building in New York, and, and he did. So there's this picture that we have hanging up on our, our wall in the shop kind of as an inspiration to us of the headline. It was, a, it was a newspaper article. It says, Man Waits for Tucker, and a picture of my grandfather standing in front of his empty Tucker dealership. And oh, uh, I've so, seen that picture. Um, yeah, it, I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it's so cool. The, the picture's so cool. So from that time on, um, you know, Tucker failed, so he wasn't able to ever deliver a car from his dealership. He took 130 orders in three days. Uh, wow! But no dealer ever delivered a car. The cars were all seized by the government and auctioned off uh, by the SEC. So that car is basically, uh, you know, 50 prototypes. They're all handmade. I'm restoring number 44 out of num- out of 50 in my shop right now, and the uh, clock is ticking. But we're bringing that to Pebble Beach in August, and um, so that car was in excellent condition as far as being preserved. No rust, no damage, very complete car. But the real challenge in restoring a Tucker is the quality, the build quality from 1948. They were the cars were stamped out of Kirkside tooling and made of like 20 gauge sheet metal so the car is like thin and the parts don't fit and they were basically put together and filled with lead and sculpted with lead so we took we took nearly 200 pounds of lead <laughs> out of that car and oh, wow. factory yeah factory tucker lead we took 200 pounds out and um we did an awful lot of metal shaping to correct the sheet metal so it didn't require that much lead or filler to get it back to the shape that it that it, it looks. So uh, that project started in November, and uh, the crew has been working on it um, ever since, and, it, and it's scheduled to, to debut at um, Pebble Beach in August. 
So wow. what do you do with 200 pounds of lead that you pull out of a car? I mean, you can't just like uh, go over into Connecticut and dump it in their water supply to make <laughs> New Jersey schools look better, right? <laughs> I, mean... I, I think what the plan is with that Tucker lead is um, we like to do things for, for charitable causes. And anything that we can do to use our cars for charity or to help someone or to, to inspire someone. We'll do that before we run to some event and try to win a trophy with it. We we always do things with our cars um, that go beyond the normal waiting in line for a trophy. So um, we've, we're thinking, now I don't own the lead. My customer owns the lead, but he's also a very charitable guy. We're thinking that we're going to take 200 pounds of Tucker lead and probably make either like little keychains or some kind of a some kind of a thing that relates it back to this Tucker number 44 um, that people can buy and all 100% of the pro- proceeds would go to a charitable cause. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. I think that those, cool. that lead can, can live on some way instead of just throwing it away. Somehow it can, it can, uh, it can live on and people can enjoy it. Hey, um, I got a, I got a question back to the, uh, to the bullet you're working on. Um, since since it's kind of a prototype that never really got finished, I don't know what Tucker came up with or what he didn't. But the way you have the seating set up is is kind of ingenious. Uh, yeah. Was that was that his idea or is that you? No, that that's our idea. Um, yeah. It's yep. brilliant. Thanks, thanks. So we we said that we need to solve the problem. You know, the main problem that he didn't build his car. Um, we we need to solve it. We have to come up with a way to solve it. So. We, we were thinking of how, how can how can we we use you know modern technology to solve the problem that they had back in '46. So then I had the idea of of rotating the seat assembly. We have a flat floor. There's no transmission or driveline to run through the car, and we have nothing but flat space there. So why not? So then I turned to my very close friend Sean Tucker, who is the great grandson of Preston Tucker. He's a very and cool guy too. He's a very very uh, yeah, cool guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah, Sean is—he's uh, an engineer and um, automotive engineer. So he said, "Okay, I, I, I can do this." So he he started playing with SolidWorks, and in fact, I think he even taught himself how to use SolidWorks on that project. So um, he went, yeah, he went to working that thing out, knowing that we only had four inches of frame rail that we were willing to give up. We didn't want to have things inside the car wrap, so it had to stay within that envelope. We wanted all the seats to remain facing forward at all times so that they're not twirling around. And um, and we want them to be um, safe so that when the things lock in place, you know, there's no chance of you moving around, you know, flying out of the cockpit because the because the seats are spinning around. So he took, he took that and he, he, he put it all in SolidWorks and he made it work. And, uh, and then my father, he's the in-house machinist. And, and he also does CAD work, too. Um, but, but Sean engineered this one on, on SolidWorks. And so then my father machined the parts that we needed that Sean designed on SolidWorks. And uh, Bob Cuneo, who is, um, he does a lot of our chassis work. And uh, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He's, he's another member of the team that's just absolutely amazing. In fact, one day, I think you guys should probably interview him. He's, he's got such a history of, of Olympic bobsleds that he's created. Uh, Winston Cup cars, hot rods, uh, Paul New. He built all of Paul Newman's cars. I mean, you guys really need to speak with, with Bob Cunio. 
But yes. uh, I agree. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> awesome, and and not a, not not enough not not enough people know about Bob Cuneo. He's an amazing guy. Um, but anyway, he did a lot of the fabrication on on that piece, and uh, so all four of us were involved in bringing that thing to life, and now it works flawlessly, and it solved the problem that Tucker had that kept him from building that car. So when it's locked in, does it lock pretty tight? I mean, there's no, there's no moving and it just, it's snug down. It's locked in. Yeah. It, it, it's got a, um, it's got a positive lock that is electronically operated. And, um, so once it's, it's locked in place, you can't move a, a hair and, and it's oh, super safe. Wow. Yeah, okay. It, it's very cool. And it's quiet. It moves quiet. Um, we can control the speed. Uh, Sean used Arduino and he was able to program it. So it'll, it'll stop softly and it'll start slow and then pick up a little speed. It has safeties in it. So let's say for instance, somebody's leg were to get caught. It's not going to cut your leg off. It's going to, it's going <laughs> to, it's going to sense that and just stop. So it's very safe. Um, is it something that you would put in a car for the public? Well, I guess you probably could. I mean, it's engineered well enough to do that. Um, but I think that center drive is probably not going to happen. Um, in, in cars, although I don't see why it couldn't. You know, I think with this solution, it really could happen. This is so much better than my idea for the seat where I was going to take parts off of like an old Scrambler amusement park ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, would it be great to sit in? You sit in the front, it throws you into the back seat, grabs the next rider. This would be great. <laughs> Yeah. See, I wanted to design a slider deal for my pickup so I could just slide over, roll the window down. You know, instead of putting electric windows, I want a zillion dollar seat setup. So. Oh, well, you can just move your, your seat track sideways. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Just yeah. get a really long handle. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining that because you had put pictures up and I'd seen it. It's like, what is? I mean, I, I knew what it was, but I, I since I I couldn't see it up close to see what it was doing. Like, this is really cool, whatever whatever this whole concept is here. I'm really liking it. Yeah, well, it was a solution to an old problem. Man. And then, and then we, we had access to blueprints and, and the drawings from, from Tucker on the torpedo that, that not many people have seen. And um, another thing was having the gauge cluster, the speedometer and all the gauges, right in the center of the steering wheel. And Tucker had a great point. You know, why are, why are we always looking over the steering wheel to try to see the speedometer, you know? The, the view is, is obstructed by the steering wheel itself. Why not have it in the center? So he left the rendering behind, but he didn't engineer it. So again, Sean Tucker did the engineering to make a stationary gauge cluster live in the center of the steering wheel. So now you, you can steer the wheel around it, and the gauge cluster is always remaining stationary. So that was a Tucker concept that, uh, that we engineered. Um, just for this car. But it's finished by a Tucker. That's what makes it really bad. Right. It's a Tucker yeah. started it and a Tucker finished it. That's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it didn't go very far out of the family, yeah, which is so cool. I mean, it just dropped down a couple of generations. And Sean is just a brilliant guy. Uh, Sean and his brother, Mike. Mike is uh, his twin brother. And um, Sean is probably more of the hands-on of the two. And, uh, and Mike is excellent as far as as organizing things and finding things out research he's tremendous with it so on tucker 44 we are learning so many things that haven't really been discovered on all the other tuck, tucker restorations so we're realizing that a lot of these cars that have been restored in museums or in personal collections 
are following possibly a wrong standard in some ways. And um, so Mike has made so many discoveries of, of things that exist in blueprints, and now we know. So, so uh, the car that we're bringing to Pebble Beach should be very, very accurate. It should be a very accurate representation of how that car actually was built in the factory. I'm an aerospace guy, so I've been in the business for a number of years, and we we do a lot of things using engineering drawings and blueprints. What was it like to go to and look at an original Tucker blueprint? Is that mind blowing, or was that pretty cool? No, it, it is mind blowing because if I Sean just sent me a picture of a hand drawn because these are all hand drawn, you know, mm -hmm. 47 of a hand drawn uh, blueprint of just a simple window rubber. You know, what holds the, the windshield into the body seems pretty simple, right? If you saw the amount of detail and information that is built yeah. into that little that little extrusion, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that much information was needed to make it's that. It's like piece. each blueprint is a piece of artwork. Oh, they are. And, and <laughs> it, it's, and, it, it is. I'm serious. I mean, I've, I've looked at a lot of old Northrop prints because I've worked for Northrop and some old Northrop hand-drawn stuff from way back in the day. Yeah. And, and as you say, the detail... The angles, the views, all the everything. It was just slick the way they did it. The shadowing. Oh, it's, just, it's amazing. It, it is it's, incredible. So so Tucker has all of those or access to all of them. They're part of the AACA Museum in, in Hershey, PA, uh, where they have three Tuckers on display and, and all the engines. But interesting story. Dave Kamak, who donated three Tuckers to that museum, was also the owner of all these blueprints. And the story goes that someone who worked in the, I, I think in the FBI, or I'm, I'm not sure who had access or who held these blueprints, but somehow or another, they ended up in a garage in someone's house in Michigan. That house changed hands a couple times. Somebody was now going to renovate the house. So they took all these blueprints in the garage, not knowing what they were, and took them to the local dump. And oh. they just get rid of them at the dump. So luckily, the person at the dump said, no, that, that blue ink is hazardous material. We can't accept that. <laughs> so so you, can't, you can't leave them here. If that person didn't say that, all those blueprints would have been gone forever. They would have been incinerated oh, and wow. gone forever. But luckily, that person stopped them and said, we can't accept that um, because it's hazardous, so take them away. So the person brings them back to the garage. Now opens them up and sees it's Tucker Carr, doesn't really know much about Tucker Carr, but reaches out to somebody who happens to be Dave Kamak, the collector of three Tucker cars, and he said, I'm on my way. And they filled up <laughs> they filled up a, uh, a a big box truck, I mean right to the to the top, and they have every blueprint. Now you want to hear about oh, something spooky. Wow. They have not only all the blueprints, but every paper correspondence that Tucker had. And this is all from the investigation. Oh, so, so they, they, they bring us in, and they say, yeah, take a look around. And we're talking about a room just full to the ceiling of paper. And, uh, and Dave Kamek hired a person, I think, full-time for two years just to organize these things, to put them in some kind of a arrangement. So we go in, and now we're just going to poke around a little bit. And in five minutes, of all these millions of pieces of paper, I pull out a slice of paper out of a file. And it says Ida Brothers Tucker on it. And oh, it's, wow. It's correspondence from my grandfather. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? And and it was, I mean, it was mind-blowing to me that of all of these pieces of paper, it could have been anything. 
and it was correspondence from my grandfather. So, so, so that's wow. horrible. All right. But then two years later, it happened again. I, I go in there and we're poking around and they pull out another piece of paper from my grandfather. And I mean, there can't be very many from him. There were like 2000 dealers and all of these blueprints and all these correspondence. So the, the percentage of paperwork that could be from my grandfather, it's gotta be, you know, one in a million. And, and, and I, and I found two of them. It's just, it's mind blowing. That's crazy. It's crazy. So then, um, shortly after that, Sean Tucker's, father john he goes downstairs he's got a, a collection of tucker things that that he buys when, when they come available radios is, is a pretty popular tucker thing because they made a lot of radios and uh, so he's going through his little collection of radios one day and and he turns one around and it says ship to ida brothers tucker yonkers new york no and kidding. again we're like <laughs> man how does this keep happening so he, wow. he so he, he gifted that to me and i have it and you know i cherish the, the fact that that's on there but, um, you know, like I said, my grandfather was, he was one of more than 2000 dealers. So it's not like there were only a couple, you know, they were, they, they were, they were plentiful, but it's just amazing. I just feel like, you know, Preston is, is kind of like guiding Sean and, and, and myself. And then my grandfather's up there kind of pushing us along and, uh, and it's just weird how it happens. I, I've always lived by this, this weird credo that, you know, all things are delicately interconnected. And it, it's funny to me that this is almost a case of not just that, but almost some kind of like vindication in the universe where, you know, he's, he's finally going to get his due, but after so much time and still through, you know, the original family members and that yeah. that's outstanding. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and, and, and it, it still doesn't come easy, you know, building these cars is so damn difficult for, for so many reasons. And um, I don't know if it's just, the car itself, the Tucker car, if there's something about it, but it seems like the, the same challenges that Preston was up against you know, on a much smaller scale for us, we're almost faced by the, the same things. And, um, I, I don't know why that is, but his, his spirit of pushing hard and, and just not, not rolling over, um, keeps us going, you know, cause we, we can't roll over either. We have, we have to just keep pushing hard and we do, we work hard. Yeah, you know what's so crazy about the Tuckers is that a lot of the collectors were like Dave Kamak's age, you know, and then there was a thirty-year generational span where nobody was collecting those things, and all of a sudden, and now it's you guys. Yeah. And there's this, you guys are like the the next guys that are going to be carrying the torch on these things because you've kind of become the go-to guys on these cars as far as cosmetic restorations and and Sean and Mike and doing all the. Uh, research and everything you guys are kind of the guys that are going to keep this brand alive well you know we uh, we, we think that we made tuckers cool again you know because we did a couple of hot rod tuckers and, and fabricated things and and put our own little spin on them um this tucker 44 is is our first full tucker restoration we did some some restoration work on, on other cars in the past uh but this is the first full tucker restoration where we we had this thing apart as, you know, as, as apart as you can get it. And, um, you know, Sean is even restoring the bolts. He, this car even has the correct bolts on it. So instead wow. of throwing away and buying new bolts, they have a marking on them. They're correct. He's CAD plated each bolt. So it is exact, exactly right. So we're really taking it to, to a, uh, to, to an extreme 
but why not? And, and we also have um, Mark Lieberman to thank. Mark Lieberman has restored, I think, five or six Tuckers um, now. And uh, so he, he's also been a wealth of not only information, but also materials. He's gone through some, some uh, efforts to recreate things that luckily we were able to just call him and say, hey, you have some of these that we can buy? And he goes, yep, I made, I made a couple extra. So it's cool that, <laughs> that he's not only able to do that for us, but also that he's willing to do it for us. So um, we have him to thank as well. I mean, there's so many people that are out there willing to help us and, and, uh, and trying. And um, I'm also amazed how many people you know, are, are still around that had firsthand knowledge of when you know, the Tucker was new and it was coming out. And they come out and tell us the stories. But, oh, yeah, I was a kid. I was only five years old. But I remember like it was yesterday. I went there with my dad or my uncle or whatever. And we we're going to buy one. And, you know, hearing that kind of stuff is, um, you know, it's exciting to me because I, I realized that this was such a big deal. You know, it was not like just another car coming out. It was really going to change things. If it could have, who knows what cars would have looked like now, you know, yeah. or even even in the 70s, what, car, what cars would have looked like then or, or, or in the 80s. Because yeah. I think they would have been so much further along. Right. You, you look at what the 48s got on it compared to everything else in that era. And, man, that thing was cutting edge. Cutting edge. Oh, and, the four, so and the 48 hard. was really only a plan B. You know, that was really only what, what Tucker was able to, to do in that limited amount of time. That was only a sample of what he wanted to do now if you ever get time to go to the hershey museum in, in uh, the aaca museum in hershey you're going to see tucker's own engine you know everybody thinks tucker used a helicopter engine and, and that was great and that happened but that was a plan b tucker made his own engine it was a 589 cubic inch flat six <laughs> yeah. wow i did not know you got a i somewhere. read a little bit on that thing it was a five inch bore by five inch stroke yes oh you want wow. to talk about a torque Whoa. monster? Well, that was a yeah. grunt monster yeah i think it was only going to make 2000 rpms but it was going to make tremendous torque and the coolest thing about that engine in my opinion is that there was no camshafts now preston was a was big on less moving parts he didn't want transmissions he didn't want valve trains he wanted simple. He wanted everything to be simple. Now, not not simple in, in, in design or concept, but simple in the end product so that there's less to break. And he designed hydraulically operated valves. So that engine that's in the Hershey Museum runs, and there is no camshaft. It has a, a, an oil distributor that puts hydraulic pressure out to each cylinder and opens the valves. So. Yeah. Yeah, and think about that. Koenigsegg is only working on that now, and that's at the highest level of technology now. Tucker did it already. It ran. It worked in 1946. He also did not have a transmission. He had a hydraulic uh, or torque converter at each wheel. So now you have all-wheel drive car, four-wheel independent, and no drive shafts, no axles. The engine was basically now a pump would pump oil to each wheel, each each uh, uh, torque converter at each wheel, and it would power it forward. So, if one wheel gets stuck, I mean, it's you know you have you have three others to keep you moving, and um, that works. So cool. He's so cool, and he was he was at this point in the forties. So if if he would have had the time and money to perfect that engineering, how would General Motors and Ford and everybody else still make a car 
you know, with, with a differential and a transmission, and they still do it now. Well, it would have changed everything. I, holy smokes, it would have changed design of everything out there. Of everything. That's right. Yeah. And that's so, the thing. Wow. I mean, you're talking about, you know, basically you know, a small company that can be very agile like that, very mm-hmm. inventive, do all this cool stuff. I, you know, you gotta you got to figure that's what planted the fear into all of the other companies because they were yeah. so tied up in bureaucracy and red tape at every corner. Here's a guy who could go, I want to do this. Let's figure yeah. out the engineering. Bam, he could make it happen. Right. And that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Now, we also it, have to give give the big three and the other car companies a little credit, too, because they had to stop for the war effort. So they had to go and make components and parts and, and, and things for the war effort. So they weren't able to develop cars. So they were kind of stuck at that point while Tucker was able to work on, on this new idea, his new car. But that kind of goes away when you say, all right, well, then what happened? You know, what about in the, in the, in the 50s and then the 60s and the 70s and the 80s? And now, and now you still have a car with a differential and you still have a car with a transmission that shifts and a camshaft. And, and it's still basically the same. And, and Tucker had a, a comparison between a 1948 Cadillac chassis and a 1948 Tucker chassis with a powertrain. And, and he was comparing how one looks so archaic and one doesn't. But the sad part is we still make the car that looks like that 48 Cadillac. It's still pretty much the same. And I mean, now it has a computer on it and it's more refined and it has you know, electronics and it has toys everywhere, but the bones are really the same. It's the same thing. That, that drive line and everything has not advanced. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. And another thing that Tucker was way ahead, he was 40 years ahead of everybody on safety. No one was really starting to think about safety till probably the early 60s. Right. That's when safety started becoming pretty critical. And yeah. he had the padded dash, seat belts, uh, glass that was designed to uh, pop out. Right. Uh, yeah, it's just that was, you know, who was thinking like that? Nobody was thinking like that. No. In fact, they were thinking the opposite. They even touch on that in the movie. Uh they didn't deliver any Tuckers with seatbelts in them because his his own his own company at, at a time when he didn't have control over every decision insisted that they do not put seatbelts in them because it implies that the car is unsafe. And, and, and <laughs> which, yeah, it, it, just for a marketing thing. And Tucker is saying that's ridiculous because now our own customers are going to be getting hurt when they don't need to be getting hurt. So yeah. he was he was way ahead of his time in design, styling performance and and safety so he had a he had a whole new look at cars and then why did it take so long for us to get there don't know well let me ask something something else kind of along those lines though um you know because the movie really introduced the world to tucker i mean what's been gosh 25 years now yeah i think it was like 85 yeah so um more than 25 then yeah Wow, damn it, I'm old. Um, <laughs> so what was left out of that movie that you think was super important? Well, I, I like the fact that they vindicated him because right. there was a long time after that that Preston Tucker lost you know, his reputation. He lost his business. Yeah. He also lost his health. Tucker died only five years later. You know, it, it, it basically killed or six years later. It, it killed him. It took so much out of him. If you, if you look at pictures of Preston Tucker, when he is, is just introducing this new car that was going to come out, and then you look at a picture of him after the company closed, 
you think that he aged like 30 years. And then you realize it's only a couple of years that went by. So, I mean, it took so yeah. much out of that guy. And, and it, it's just not fair. Now, my grandfather, to the day he died, always said that Preston Tucker was an honest man. He did nothing wrong. He, his intentions were good. And, and if you ever have access to go look at those blueprints at the AACA and the amount of ideas that are on paper, patent applications and revisions, there is no doubt in my mind that he wasn't doing everything he could to make the best car that he possibly could make. He was not just taking the money and running. He was working. He was working really hard. He had engineers. He had he had people planning and, and coming up with 10 different variations of every idea he could think of. So um, there was no doubt that he was he was trying to do the right thing. So I'm glad that, that the movie you know, did that. It didn't make him look like a, a, a villain or a thief because he wasn't. So for me, that's the best part, you know, is that, is that they did that for him. That's neat. That's fantastic. So, so being around Tucker's as much as you have, is there still one design feature that you look at every time you get in on inside of one of those cars or look at the outside that just blows you away every time you see it? Well, I mean, just walking up on it, like, you know, I, I look at, at a Tucker every day. You know, I have one of one of my customers' cars in, in, in my showroom, but I never tire of that design. That roof line and the way that that hood comes to a point in the center. I mean, you just can't beat it. And, and that's all Alex Tremulous, by the way. Alex Tremulous is um, or was, in my opinion, just one of the greatest car designers. The things that he did were just so cool and so far ahead. And um, that's why I think that the Tucker is his crowning achievement. He's built, he's designed so many vehicles, but I think that's the one that he was the most proud of because that's the one that he had the most control over because Tucker allowed him to be an artist. He didn't, he didn't, you know, jam him up with a bunch of engineers um, that were going to keep changing his design. He let Tremulous do what he wanted to do and they designed that car and it's pure. It's a very pure design. And almost to a fault, because now I can say this, as someone who works on these cars, they're very, very difficult to line up. The way the doors fit each other, there's, there's no standard between the doors. So in other words, you don't have a fixed hole. If, if both doors lined up to some kind of a fixed hole, You'd, you'd be able to have a little bit more control. But basically, mm-hmm. both doors are floating in the, in the side of the car, and they wrap around the roof, and they are so difficult to line up so that if Tremulous did have time to have that design run through the engineering department, they probably would have made some revisions so that they can put the car together easier without so much yeah. handwork. They yeah, they probably would have had some pretty elaborate uh, production jigs and the, you know would have put everything in place. You know, um, d- during the assembly. Yeah, getting it in place is one thing, but there's, like, really no adjustability. Oh, um, I see what that's you're saying. The yeah. They come okay. right out. They, they either fit perfect or they come, like, a mile out of whack. And, um, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty difficult compared to most other cars that I've worked on. Um, so th- that may have changed had that car, you know, gone through more development. But Tremulous designed it quick, like, super quick, like, in a couple of days. And then, and then they made tooling, which was not great tooling, and they stamped the panels out that really didn't fit each other, and they required a tremendous amount of modification and, and handwork to make that car one piece. 
but they did it, and, and they did it well, and the cars looked pretty good. A lot of the panels maybe touched each other and broke the paint off, or some gaps were huge and some were tight, some were overlapping. So they weren't perfect cars. Mm-hmm. Um, the car that we're restoring is not perfect either, and that's that's intentional. We're trying to make it closer to how um, they could have looked, but not embarrassing either. You know, we don't we don't want we don't want the doors to chip the paint off. So we're mm-hmm. we're trying to find that sweet spot where it doesn't look fake, but it also has some of that handmade Tucker look about it. So with with a Tucker, then you're in that weird spot between like kind of like the Mopar restorers who put every yeah. possible flaw in there. Like they know that, you know, uh, Jeff that was out in the paint shop who worked at that plant on Thursday when the car was painted, he was going bald. So there's going to be a hair of his someplace in the paint. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> the mayflies were out, you know, of course yeah, not sir. there, right? He's got yeah. little bug tracks walking across the A-pillar and stuff like that. So is it like that with, with the Tucker restores? Do they look at, if you, and I don't know if there's a perfect one out there where somebody took the time and gapped every panel and made it flawless. I don't know if they look at that car and kind of turn their noses up and think, oh, overachiever. Yeah. Well, that, that, <laughs> that does exist. And, and we've been struggling with that because for us as a shop, we want the car to leave as perfect as we can make it. But that's really only patting ourselves on the back. That isn't really, you know, making this car tell a story. And it's supposed to be telling a story. It's supposed to show people what these things look like. They were handmade cars. They weren't perfect. The, the panels didn't line up. Um, the horizon lines were all out of whack. You know, the fender was pointing one way and the door was going the other way. So you, you had to find kind of a happy medium. We, we, we tried to not make this car look too perfect so that it looks like a, you know, a slicked out modern hot rod. But not embarrassing either. So uh, if you look on the, on, the, on the inside of the bumpers, yeah, you're going to see like welds and hammer marks when they beat them up with a ball peen hammer to try to make them fit. That's still all in there. We didn't we didn't get rid of that. There's the surfaces of the bumpers. We improve them, um, but they don't fit. The left piece doesn't fit the right piece exactly because it fits the way they made them fit. So we're we're trying to be kind of true to to. Um, you know, showing that they are handmade cars and they're not perfect. And that that's really awesome. And I mean, when you stop to consider too, all of these cars were prototypes basically when you get down to it. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. think prototypes. there's any other mark out there that has 50 prototypes floating. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and out of the 50, 47 of the cars are still together and exist and, and wow. run and, and, and everything. They're all, they're all there. Um, are there any cars that are missing? No, I, I believe they're all accounted for, but but they're gone, you know, crushed and, and, and destroyed. Um, but I, I don't think that there's any mystery cars out there. So oh, yeah. how, how many have you had your hands on? Um, 51. I've had, yeah, I've had <laughs> my hands on um, number 51, which was the, the, the next car in line. So Tucker counted up 50. 51 was right behind it. Um, that car was owned by a close friend of ours in New Jersey. His name was Chick De, uh, De Lorenzo. He, he's, he's gone now. He died uh, probably seven or eight years ago. Um, but he was a major help for us. He made that car available to us so that we were able to measure it and take patterns and templates and anything that we needed so that we can hand make our own car. Um, we did a little bit of restoration work on that car for him. And um, 
recently we we made some axles for the tin goose uh you know about the tin mm-hmm. goose that, yeah. that is the, the, the prototype yeah. car that car lives in in the swagger museum in western pennsylvania um that car is known for the wheels falling off they literally fall off the, the axles and suspension break on that car and uh, so recently they sent us the original axles which were made uh by Tucker in his machine shop by shortening an axle and welding the hub onto it. So it was actually a welded axle. And so it broke a hundred times during its life and, and everybody would just kind of weld it back together or try to come up with some kind of bolt solution or, or what. But this time we actually machined new axles for the, for the tin goose um, out of one piece and had them hardened and splined and all that stuff. So now the, um, that, that problem is now solved after, you know, after 70 years. The, the wheels should stay on the the tin <laughs> it, 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 at least on the back. I don't know what's going on up front, but on the back, we're hoping that the wheels stay on. So because that car needs to to actually get on its wheels, roll and drive for Pebble Beach. And uh, so I heard just yesterday that the car is running and uh, and will will drive across the lawn of Pebble Beach without the wheels falling off. With hopefully no wheels falling off. I'm sure the the rears won't. Uh, hopefully the front. So. Um, so we've had our hands on 51 on the, on the tin goose um, and, uh, and now 44 for its full, full restoration. And, uh, and, and that car, you know, we're touching every piece of it. That's, broke that's broke cool. it down as far as you can break the car down. I, I did a little bit of research on a lot of the tuckers that were out there. Wikipedia, of course, may not be the most accurate thing at times, but it kind of broke down each car and where it was at. And one of the cars that fascinated me the most, and I don't know if it's a real one or not, but it was the convertible. Okay, yes. I don't, I don't know much about the convertible. What I've been told is that um, there was a theory or a thought or a story that it was, it was a secret project that Preston Tucker was working on. Unfortunately, there isn't any real documentation to prove that. Yeah. So no one really knows what the truth is. Um, but I think without documentation, we can only assume that, you know, it's not a true story. It, yeah. it could be, but, but you, can't, you, you, you can't base anything on that without any documentation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, a, would, it's a cool-looking car. It, it's a great-looking car. Somebody did a fabulous job yeah. on, on the build. Um, yeah. I think I was told that it had maybe a Pontiac convertible top that they adapted to it. Um, it gives and, it a completely uh, different look. Yeah, unfortunately, the car got kind of a bad rap because of the the lack of documentation and, and yeah. the story. Um, I think it, had they presented it maybe where it was not trying to, to legitimize the fact that it was a, a, a Preston Tucker concept, um, the car could have been accepted on a different level as a very cool design study. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I like it. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a great project and... and uh, and I, I think the car's kind of hidden away now because of, of the, the bad, um, That's you know, too the bad, bad horror around it, which is unfortunate because it, it yeah, shouldn't, a, shouldn't have a, that. You know, whoever yeah. owns it really should be proud of it, and, and people should right. It. Yeah, it's a great looking car. Another thing that I found that was really fascinating is even the ones that through the life of the uh, of the of the car had maybe uh, I know one hit a tree, one was in a fire. Well, you find out that some of the, those cars even donated some of their parts for restorations for the others. Absolutely. Which is fascinating. That, it's excellent that, that, that they can live on. I think car number, I think it goes by number 57, uh, was restored recently, and it was at Amelia Island last year. Beautiful car, uh, red 
just gorgeous car. And uh, and I think that some of the parts lend themselves from some of the wrecked cars. And, and, and they created that car. Yeah, too neat. Yeah, it's great. great so, car. Rob, what whatever became of the fiberglass tucker that uh, you guys were developing? Uh, well, we, we still have them. And um, we built four. We built four of those cars. Now, we never offered them for sale as far as like a, um, you know, a, a, a kit or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We keep them really for ourselves. So the cars that okay. we built have always been you know, our own build. And if we sell it when it's finished, you know, that's what we do. But um, we don't we don't really take orders for them. And uh, we build them the way we like to build them. So that way we can keep that's our you know, integrity. Because early on, we thought about maybe taking orders and building cars. And right away... We heard, oh, we want one with a blown Hemi in the front, and we want to do this, and we want to do all this crazy <laughs> stuff. And Pro we, didn't, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to make the cars a circus act. We wanted to make the cars cool and have our own look. And nice. That's, so that's what we've done. You, you know, that shows how much you guys respect the heritage. And I, we we all really appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, well, that's so, what we're about. So thanks for noticing that. But yeah, that's what we do. I mean, it would have been easy. We could have we could have been cranking bodies out everywhere and selling them like crazy, and taking the taking the short money. But um, we just didn't feel that that's what we're about. And um, so we, we did one car for the for the movie Sin City Two, right? Uh, with uh, Robert Rodriguez, um, he, he he made the movie with Frank Miller. Uh, lots of stars: Bruce Willis and Jessica Alba, and, um, big cast. Um, and uh, so we made a movie or we made a car for that movie and the, the car looked nice and shiny and new and looked great. And when it was finished, we, we, we got the car back because I, I didn't want to sell the car to the movie company. I only leased it to them because I wanted to have it back when, when it was done. So once I got the car back, you know, it's kind of a movie prop. It, it moves under its own power and, and it, it's OK to look at it from 50 feet away, but it's not really a high quality car. It's just a movie prop. Um, so five years ago. We took it out to the Bonneville for the Gyronauts' 50th anniversary, mm-hmm. and the Gyronaut. I remember that well. Yeah. Okay. So the Gyronaut is the world's fastest motorcycle that held a record between 1963 and 1970. And we did the restoration five years ago, and we brought it to Bonneville for its uh, its uh, 50th anniversary. I, I was there at Bonneville. I got, I got to tell you, I. Watching people lose their mind, dude, that yeah. was like the funniest thing. And people are like flipping out. How yeah. could somebody bring a Tucker out here on the salt? It was great. <laughs> like, you know, it's a glass car, right? No, yeah. it's not. It's an original car. No, it's not an original car. That's why it's out here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had we had rust on it. We made it look like, like a, like a an old rusty barn find. But the reason why we wanted to have the Tucker out there is because the Gyronaut was designed uh, and built by Alex Tremulous, the designer of Tucker. So so Tucker hired him to, to design his car in 47 to 48. And now in 63, he's still doing cool stuff, and he's designing the world's fastest motorcycle. So when uh, <laughs> when his nephew, Steve Tremulous, purchased the bike, he contacted us, and knowing you know our love for, for, for the work of, of Alex Tremulous and, and Preston Tucker, we said, okay, well, we're not really motorcycle guys and we're really not even restorers but yes that project will do so send it over so we, we did that <laughs> so we, we had to create a couple of things that were gone from the crash like the canopy and the engine cover but it was a pretty straightforward restoration the chassis and engine 
was already restored when it came to me. So that part was easy. We really just had to do the body and, and, and all that. So we brought it out to uh, Bob LePan. He was the, the uh, original driver and engine builder and, uh, and creator of the, uh, of the chassis. And so we, we brought it out to see him in Michigan. And then we kept going on to Bonneville. And they were going to allow him to make an exhibition run at 150 miles an hour. Of course, the bike is capable of 270. Um, wow. But he was unable to get out of the, uh, the bike fast enough to pass the bailout test. So they wouldn't allow him to make the run, which, you know, I think was fine anyway. because He doesn't need to prove anything more. I mean, he didn't. You know, <laughs> the, the, the bike was that fast. And when he crashed it, he just nearly lost his arm. You know, he dragged his arm on the salt for miles. And the ground his arm away. And um, they were able to save his arm. It was like a miracle, but they, they saved his arm, which was great because he said that without without two arms, he can't ride a motorcycle. And if he can't ride a motorcycle, he has no will to live because that's what he does. And um, I think within the last maybe 10 years, he set another record of Bonneville on a, on a, on a motorcycle. So wow. we're, we're talking about a guy who's on the Isle of Man. I mean, he's done it all. This guy is, is wow. a real thing. Um so fascinating people that I've been able to deal with, with, with these Tucker projects and the gyronaut and, and all this crazy stuff that we get involved in. But, you know, the uh, cars are great, but it's really the people, the people that you meet and the stories that that you're able to um, to hear and, and, and be a part of. That's what really makes this stuff special. I mean, you know, the, the equipment is, is awesome, but when you can really connect, with, with with someone and the history and, and, and the love for, for the thing that's when 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 i'm most inspired that's well dude thank you thank you very much for for doing this i know it's getting late back there and uh we're 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 a whole lot behind you so we're we're okay with sleep but it's getting late where you're at but i, I, I could talk to you until tomorrow morning yeah. Well, and I, I can tell you right now, speaking for the guys, we definitely want to have you on. But next yes. time around, we will not bring up Tucker's. Okay. <laughs> we'll just talk about you, Porsches, <laughs> what you do. Yes, there you go. We've got to finish that well, game show, too. <laughs> yeah, he got the first question, right? What was the second question? Oh, he, he did well. He he went way past the bonus round. We're into... <laughs> yeah. And what did he's he about to take Brian. the physical challenge now? <laughs> I'm not giving Thank you a physical. Again, Rob. Very much, man. Thank you again. My yes. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thinking of me. And uh, anytime you want to talk, I'm I'm always good. I yeah, we definitely you. want to have you back on. Absolutely. Cool. Sounds good. Hey, thank you again for for your time. And I know it's it's a weeknight. And thank you for staying up. And the center thanks to your family for letting us <laughs> commandeer you for some time here. <laughs> No problem. They were happy to get rid of me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank All right, you guys. again, sir. You have a thank great night. Thank you again, night. sir. Have a good Bye. night. Bye, Rob. Bye. Thank you. Well, I got to tell you, that was a great interview. And uh, I know I don't know about you guys, but I am certainly um, tuckered out after that one. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, so. <laughs> now, it, was, it was a great time. Yeah. Uh, I want to say thanks again to Mr. Rob Ida for taking time out in the middle of uh, what is obviously an always very busy week for him. I hope you guys had a great time, too. Well, thanks again for listening, and uh, until next time, I'm still Brian. I'm still Brad. Still Alex. I'm still Eric, but I'm tuckered out. Ooh, nice. Oh, a callback. Boom. Seconds after. Wow, okay. Nice. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
You can edit that. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com. <laughs>